On this episode of Board Game Times, game designer Ben Rossett on working with a co-designer and where he gets his inspiration. Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Board Game Times, the podcast about the people, places, and events making tabletop gaming great in Chicago. I'm your host, Clark Bender, and this episode I'll be talking to game designer Ben Rossett. You might know Ben and his co-designer Matthew O'Malley from the games Between Two Cities, The Search from Planet X, or one of his games based on brewing beer. No matter how you know him or don't know him, stay tuned because I think it's a great interview. At least it's a great interviewee. I cannot speak for the interviewer. I do also want to note a technical problem we had this week when my battery pack for my computer suddenly started beeping in the middle of the interview. I was able to edit out all the noise, but it did sort of result in an abrupt beginning to the Board Game Times minigame, which may or may not seem obvious, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. Thanks for bearing with me on that. I hope you're all having a great fall and you're getting chances to play lots of games. I was recently at the Gaming Hoopla meetup and got to play all sorts of games over the course of the weekend. In case you don't know what that is, it's a weekend meetup, convention, whatever you want to call it, mostly just for playing games. They do have an auction and they do have some raffles, which are also super great. They are all about raising money for Aurora Cancer Care this year, and they raised over $20,000, which is just amazing. The weekend is just dedicated to games and gaming tables. You can just grab stuff from their library and pick a table and start playing games. And I got a chance to play all sorts of them. I played a bunch of games for the first time or games that I'd only ever played solo before. Games like Concordia, Lancaster, Nidavellir, Libertalia, Chicago Express, Between Two Cities, among others. I also played Lost Ruins of Arnak. Just a lot of great games and really makes me want to play a bunch of them over and over again. A couple disappointments as well, but, uh, you know, we can talk about those another day. Anyway, it was a great time, and I want to especially thank Randy, Stephen, and Rachel for playing the majority of my games with me that weekend. Also, Beth and John for playing a bunch of games and allowing me to kind of horn in on their gaming group from time to time. A special shout-out to Jay Bartelt and everybody at Gaming Hoopla. They really know how to run a fantastic event and weekend. You owe it to yourself to try and attend if you ever get the chance, and you will have a chance pretty soon because it's coming up again this spring already. Stay tuned. I hope to have Jay on the podcast so we can go through all those details in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, let's get to this episode's interview with game designer Ben Rossett. Hope you enjoy it. I'm joined today by Ben Rossett. Ben is a noted game designer. He also works at Panda Game Manufacturing as a director of HR and training, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Ben, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Clark. I appreciate it. And thanks for what you're doing to spread gaming through Chicago. Oh, thanks very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. A quick confession. Ben has recently moved out of Chicago it's really only been a few months, so we're grandfathering him in. So to the audience, I beg your indulgence on this matter. I'd like to start with getting to know the person a little bit and their gaming background. So tell me a little bit about yourself, where you were raised, what your background was like, and how you came to gaming and to be in Chicago. Yeah, I grew up in Skokie, Illinois, so just north of the city. Um, had a pretty typical middle-class suburban kind of upbringing. I got into gaming 
originally through my grandma and my dad. And I remember as a little kid sleeping over at grandma's house. And then in the, in the morning, we would play Boggle and we would play Scrabble and Yahtzee. And so kind of got into games through those kind of dice games and, you know, simple card games we used to play together. And then as I got a little bit older, I started playing Axis and Allies with my dad when I was about uh, 11 or 12. And so that was the first kind of bigger game that I got into. And we got pretty obsessed with that. I used to play we used to play all the time. And then it was when I was out of college and probably about 25 or 26 when I first got into more kind of modern tabletop hobby games. And Catan was my a gateway into the hobby as it was for so many people. Uh, that was about 2007 and just took off from there. My love of gaming, uh, I was just hooked immediately once I had played that and, and I've been a gamer ever since. So was this your father's mother? That was the grandmother that introduced you to gaming? It was. It was my dad's mom. Yep. Sounds like it was kind of in the family. Had he gotten his love of playing games from her, do you think? Yeah, I think as a, a family, when my dad was little, they used to play a lot of card games and you know, standard deck of card type of card games. I remember the, the French game Mealborn was a favorite of theirs in the family and a lot of Scrabble and Yahtzee and Boggle and, and games like that. So my dad never knew about or they were never into any kind of hobbyist games. Or I, I guess back when my dad was growing up, that wasn't so much a thing anyway. But but they were a card game, dice game kind of playing family. And so, and uh, what's been really nice is I've been able to get him into uh, board games now uh, as an adult. So when he and I hang out uh, now, it's pretty much all games, uh, playing games. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, we, it's a great thing to be able to share with him. So what kind of games does he like? He loves games that are probably on the shorter side, like half an hour type games. So games that are not too complex. So games like Seven Wonders Duel, he loves Lanterns, Morels, Ticket to Ride, so that kind of gateway or maybe gateway plus just one step up from there is uh, the, the type of games that he loves. And, and now I've gotten him during the pandemic into board game arena, uh, which I, I play a lot of BGA and I got him into it. And so he's playing BGA all the time and uh, he's kind of obsessed with, with uh, board games now. Oh, that's great. And he likes light board games. And yet you started with Axis and Allies with him of all places. Cool. We did. I remember uh, when I was about 12, we brought the game home from uh, Toys R Us and he spent like a couple hours reading the rule book and figuring out how to play the game and then taught it to me. And so uh, I appreciate him doing that, putting all that time in. But we, uh, we learned it and loved it and played for many years. So you grew up in Chicago. Did you go to school here as well? Or has your professional career taken you various places before you landed back in Chicago? I went to the University of Illinois down in Champaign. So stayed in state for school. And then I moved away for about 13 years. I lived in Washington, D.C. I had a couple of different jobs for the Labor Department. And I was an economics major in school, the Labor Department, and then the Federal Reserve Board. Lived in Washington for about 13 years and then moved back to Chicago for about six, where I got into the gaming scene in Chicago as an, you know, as an adult. And then just a few months ago, moved, moved down here to Bloomington. So 
You know, what's funny now is uh, Champaign actually is not too far from Chicago, but it's got an active gaming scene as well. So for people that might be in the south suburbs of Chicago, it's not too far of a trip down to Champaign. They've got a lot of really, really cool stuff going on there, publishers. And I've now that I live only 45 minutes away, I've been making trips over there as well, which is so funny because when I left college, I thought I'll never be back to this town again. And, <laughs> uh, and here I am now going over to Champaign for game nights. So you never know uh, when life brings you full circle. So had you been gaming much while you were in Washington, D.C., or was that sort of a period of your life where you were dedicated to the career and not doing much gaming? Or No, definitely. That's where I got into gaming. That was about 2007, maybe four years after I moved there, is where I uh, discovered uh, Catan uh, and got into gaming there. So I was pretty, pretty heavy into gaming, and that's where I started designing games as well, was in, in D.C., so... You know, my last three years in D.C. is when I transitioned away from, you know, working full time in the government. And uh, when I started working for Panda Game Manufacturing, uh, which I, I still do now. So my life was very much about gaming there in Washington and uh, has just become more so. What was that experience like in Washington? Was it a regular gaming group or was it sort of a location you'd go to that had open gaming? Just curious how that evolved. So I'd say since about 2008, 2009, pretty much all of my kind of social circles have started more and more revolving around gaming. So uh, once I got into that, uh, I actually, I found Catan only because I was looking for some for things to do. And I remember playing Axis and Allies and I couldn't play with my dad anymore because I lived in Washington. And I found a group that was playing Axis and Allies together at a game store about a half an hour, 45 minutes outside of DC. So I started going to that game store once a week for a meetup for Axis and Allies. And I saw all these other games on the shelf. What are all these? What are all these other games? So the store owner taught me Catan. That's how I got into that. And then from there, brought it home, taught all of my friends, and very quickly uh, started turning kind of my social circle into a gaming-focused uh, kind of social circle uh, in Washington. So and then just met friends there. And then there's a if anyone visits Washington or is there, there's a great game store, friendly local game store there, Labyrinth Game Shop, right in DC that. Uh, you know, also was very instrumental in just helping me as a designer and a young designer there in DC playtesting and met other designers through the store and got into playtest groups and just grew and grew and grew. That's fantastic. And how did you transition to the Chicago gaming scene? Was that fairly seamless? I mean, I assume you, you know, you're obviously leaving a group of people and moving to a new city, even though it's a city you knew well. What was that shift in your gaming experience like coming back to Chicago? I did some research before I left DC, really into trying to make connections with people that were gaming in Chicago. And so I use Facebook a lot for that, just finding different board game groups in Chicago and different meetup groups and trying to find designers. I remember just, you know, reaching out to a bunch of groups, a bunch of people and other people in my network just saying, hey, who's in Chicago? Who's a game designer in Chicago? I'm moving to Chicago. And got a few responses of people that I didn't really know, but just started meeting up with at local game stores there and hanging out and playing games. And so by the time I moved back to Chicago, you know, I already had a list of about 15 people that I wanted to meet up with or to try to meet once I got back into the city and uh, was able to do that and, and build a new kind of gaming group and community and circle once I got back to Chicago. I do want to make sure that I give a shout out to Chicagoland Games Dice Dojo up on the north side, which was my, my home game store in Chicago these last five years and really instrumental in helping me meet 
people and also to play test my own designs. I used to go there all the time as a designer and just grab a table and grab people that were in the store and do play testing. And they were always so welcoming. And I met a lot of my good friends in Chicago. I met them through Dice Dojo. So great place to be if you're in Chicago. Absolutely. We had Lex on the podcast a few episodes ago. He's such a fun interview. You can see why his energy and JP's energy really inform that that store and create such a great community. Definitely. So let's shift gears then. Let's kind of start talking about your career in game design, how that started for you. I was playing on an uh, ultimate Frisbee team in uh, Washington, D.C., and just a random person that was on the team found out that she was a gamer and she and her boyfriend were gamers and we started hanging out with them. And then uh, his name was Mike, became good friends with him. And we used to hang out and play games all the time there in DC. And then uh, one day he showed up at game night with this game that he and some of his other friends had designed. He's like, Hey, we designed this game. Do you want to try it? And I was like, sure. And we played the game and it was pretty good. And I was like, this this is just the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, it never occurred to me that you could make your own games, right? Obviously somebody had to design all these games, but it never occurred to me to actually do it uh, until he brought uh, that game to game night. I was like, that is great. I want to do that. And so I went home that night from game night and started thinking of ideas for games, had one that I liked and started working on it. And that was probably about 2008, 2008, 2009. And uh, ever since that night, you know, it really, he just changed my life by bringing a game to game night. And I've been designing ever since. Was that first game what eventually became Mars Needs Mechanics? No, that first game that I was designing was a game that had some interest, but didn't really go anywhere. Uh, got signed by a publisher, but also ended up not getting published. Uh, so my first game that did get published, Mars Needs Mechanics, was Probably, I don't know, the maybe the third game that I tried to start designing. And that was the, the first one that ended up getting published. What was it like for you that first time having a, a game box that was created, printed, and was in your hands and shrink wrap? It was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool moment. I got to be honest. Yeah, first time that I walked into Labyrinth, the game store in, in D.C. and saw the game for sale on the shelf with my name on the front of the box. That was a pretty neat moment. And anything that you create, you know, you see other people uh, enjoying it, hopefully enjoying it, or at least experiencing it, uh, it's a great feeling. So what turned the corner for you from this is an interesting hobby and side gig into, you know, I think I can do this and maybe do this full time? In terms of designing, uh, that was probably my third or fourth game that got published, right? I think at least my experience as an early designer was, okay, I got one game, like one game published. There's one company that thinks I had a good idea, but will I ever have a good idea again? Uh, and, uh, and then after I got my second game published, I was like, okay, well, I got another game published, but will I ever have a good idea again? After a few, after getting a few games published by a few different companies, you start to think, well, maybe I'm actually halfway decent at this. You know, this is not a fluke. Uh, and so I think it was around the time that Between Two Cities got signed, uh, which was probably about 2015, 2014, 2015, that I started thinking, hey, maybe I can really keep doing that. And so I'm still now 
technically not a full-time game designer because I do, you know, I do my day job is with Panda game manufacturing, but yeah, it still is a, it still is a, a dream uh, for me and my d- design partner, Matthew O'Malley, who I met in DC and is still based in DC to really design games full-time. And that's, that's something that we're working toward in the meantime. I love my mix of being able to help other people make games at Panda. And then also my second job, my night job is, uh, is designing myself. So I'm just so fortunate to be able to, to make games all day. Congratulations to you. I guess I sort of misspoke. You are full-time in the industry, if not full-time as a designer, because Panda is your day job. Kind of answering that question, uh, because maybe that's what you were asking. When did I think I could really do games full-time or kind of get into the industry full-time? And yeah, that was, uh, I'll just really quickly tell my story. I was uh, on a plane coming back from Essen. It's the first time that I ever attended Essen Spiel. And this was probably 2015. I was on a plane on my way back from Essen, uh, and I watched the movie A Fault in Our Stars, which is uh, from the book by John Green. And I, you know, I don't typically cry during movies, but I watched this movie on the plane coming home from Essen, and I just broke down right there in my seat with random strangers on either side of me, just bawling, just crying about these two teenagers that, you know, had cancer and were kind of terminally ill, but still going to pursue their dreams and live their life. And I was, you know, I just thought, well, all right, I got to, I got to change my life and do something that I really love doing. Uh, And it was on that plane ride home that I decided, okay, I'm going to do something different. Uh, and I started really getting serious about trying to get into the board games and the board game industry full-time. And uh, it was just the right timing because Panda was hiring at that time. And so about three months later, I had an offer and joined Panda. That is a great origin story. That's wild. I want to revisit Panda because that's a really interesting part of your life in the industry too. But I want to go back and kind of talk a bit about game design. So you've done Mars Needs Mechanics. Is it in that time that you meet your design partner, Matthew O'Malley. I'm curious how that partnership formed and also curious about how that design effort works. It was probably about 2015, uh, late 2014, maybe when I met Matthew, uh, just about the time that my second game, Brew Crafters by Dice Hakeney Games, now Greater Than Games, had been signed and we were kind of going through the production process uh, with, with Brew Crafters. It was about the time that I met Matthew. I met him at Unpo, which is a game designer playtesting convention that happens out on the East Coast. And I met him there and playtested one of his games. And I think he playtested one of mine. And we only lived about a half an hour, maybe 20 minutes from each other in D.C., And he started coming to the game design group that I had already been involved with there in uh, in D.C. Uh, And we just got to know each other and uh, appreciating each other's design sensibilities and eventually talked about maybe designing a game together or working on a game together. Uh, And so we started we started doing that for a while. Nothing really came out of it. But then eventually uh, we designed together between two cities uh, that got published. And ever since then, we've decided to continue being partners. So we do all of our design together. I don't design any games on my own. Everything that, that I design is with Matthew and, and vice versa. And so we were, 
living only about 20 minutes away from each other, which was really easy. We would get together once a week to play test and go over ideas. Uh, and that's continued even since I've moved to Chicago. So we have our weekly Skype session now that we get together for a couple hours and uh, either do play testing or just, again, talk about ideas and brainstorming. And so we've pretty seamlessly been able to still work together and continue working together, even, uh, even living 700 miles apart. What is the difference for you designing with a partner as opposed to designing solo? You know, it sounds pretty cliche, but I think two heads are better than one. But I'll start with the great things about it. The great things about it are that you have someone to, to bounce ideas off of and just look at things from a different angle, right? There are so many times when Matthew has uh, looked at a design that I'm working on and said, hey, what about this? And it's an idea that I just never would have thought of, you know, in 100 years because his brain works a little differently than the way that my brain works. And he can look at things from a slightly different angle. So I think it's just incredibly helpful to have that. You know, as a designer, I get into my patterns. I fall into the kinds of mechanics that I like to use and the kinds of systems that I like to use. And so just having somebody to push a little bit and saying, well, why don't we, you know, maybe we should go in this direction or have you thought about this or let's try this. And there've been so many times when Matthew has suggested something and I've thought that's not, that's not going to work. That's Matthew. That's, that's, that's dumb. That's, that's not going to work. And then, all right, I will give it a try. And I'm like, well, that totally worked and it makes the game a lot better. So let's go in that direction. So you just get to move everything, you know, iterate faster and come to good decisions and come to uh, get to make a better game faster. I think when you've got two minds that are, that are working, you know, the, uh, the flip side of that is you have to be okay with giving up some control because maybe I don't want to try the thing that he wants to try. And I do think it's a waste of time and it's not something I would be doing, but you have to, you have to give up a little bit of that control and be okay listening to somebody else's ideas and opinions. And that's easier for some uh, than for others. Uh, For me, it is, it is difficult. Uh, I'll be honest. I was the kid in school that uh, when the teacher gave us the opportunity to either work with a partner or work by ourselves, I always wanted to work by myself. I never wanted to deal with somebody else. And so I'm sure there are many times when Matthew gets frustrated with me, but it has been really great for me kind of as a person, but also as a, as a game designer to have another, to have another opinion and to have somebody else's ideas there. So do you have a tiebreaker rule? Do you have some sort of, this is how we get past impasses rule that you've put into place? You know, that sounds like a good idea. We should have that. I should talk to Matthew about our, what our tiebreaker rule is, but I think the tiebreaker rule is whatever works. Try it your way. Try it my way. Whatever works. That's that's let that speak for itself. That's the tiebreaker. Try them both. And honestly, that's the only way to do it as a game designer because you know you design a, a new game, you have a new idea, and it works flawlessly in your head. The only way to figure out what's good, what's bad, what needs to change, what other ideas you can have is to try it, is to get it to the table and try it. And I preach that to new game designers that ask me about getting into design, you've got to get it to the table and just try it, just play it. And it works the same way with a design partner. So I have an idea, he has an idea, well, let's get it to the table. Let's play it both ways and see how it is. Is that something you naturally advocate for finding a design partner at this point because it's worked well for you or do you just leave that to the individual designer? 
I would encourage people to, to give it a shot. If you know somebody that you trust and that you get along with well, that you kind of respect their sensibilities of design, yeah, I would definitely encourage, encourage people to give it a shot. It doesn't mean that you have to have a full-time partner that you always design with. I know there are a lot of designers out there that design with different design partners and you know have five, six different projects going on with five or six different people at the same time. That's just as valid as well, uh, as is not having a design partner. If you've got a, a good playtest group and you've got people that you, you know, really uh, can come in and, and serve that function. I think the important thing is you need people pushing back on you. and You need people um, who are dedicated to coming up with, uh, with new ideas uh, because we all have our biases. We all have a different way that our brains work and no one person is going to have all the good ideas. So definitely would encourage trying to design with somebody and and giving a shot and seeing how it goes. So you mentioned Between Two Cities, which is probably one of your best known games. I literally just played it for the first time this past weekend at the Gaming Hoopla game meetup here in Chicago. The tile laying part of it is very interesting, but the core idea, obviously, is this idea of sort of a negotiation between your partners on the left and the right side of you and the implications that has on the scoring. Was that sort of the core idea that started with that game, or was that something that developed out of a, a totally different idea? Developed out of a totally different idea. My initial idea that led to Between Two Cities, I was uh, in Vegas for a friend's wedding, and I was walking through the gardens of Caesar's Palace, uh, the hotel in Vegas, and they've got the you know the gardens and the, the Roman gardens kind of thing going on there in the front of the hotel, and I was I was walking through. And I had an idea about creating a game uh, about building Roman gardens. And so that was the initial idea. Matthew and I started working on that idea a little bit. It really wasn't going anywhere. And I think it was one of, in one of our design sessions that one of us, I don't even remember who it was, that said something like, well, what if you had two tiles in your hand? but you had to play them into two different areas of the garden and you had to choose which tile went into which area of the garden. That's still not between two cities, but that's getting to, Ooh, I've got two different things that I need to put in two different places. And how do I choose which one goes into which place? That idea then evolved into, well, what if the person to the side of you is doing the same thing at the same time and they're placing into the section you're placing into and you're placing into the section that the player on your other side is placing it to. And then the idea of, well, what if you're actually working with this person to build something together? So it was a kind of an evolution of an idea that came from something very different. I have to admit, the first time I played the game, you sort of go into it thinking, well, this is how is this going to work? For folks who haven't played the game before, you, you're building these two cities, but you only score the, the city that has the lower number of points. I think you'd probably be happy to know that in our game, the first game that we all played, I think we had two cities that scored 55 and two cities that scored 56. We were literally, and the person who won just happened to be me because I happened to be sitting between the two cities that were the higher point totals. I know you've also extended it, obviously, in Between Two Cities of Mad King Ludwig, which is a further expansion of that idea. How did you then get to Between Two Cities of Mad King Ludwig from that original design? Well, Between Two Cities had enough success that we had talked to Jamie Stegmeier, the you know, publisher of Stonemeyer Games, about doing another Between Two game. 
we didn't really know what that would be. Uh, Matthew and I had a bunch of ideas and one of them was between two castles for no particular reason, but what if you were building castles instead of building cities? Worked on it a little bit and, you know, it was okay, some good ideas, but it wasn't, didn't really feel special, wasn't really going anywhere. And then I said to him, you know, this should just be between two castles of Mad King Ludwig because there's already a game out there called Castles of Mad King Ludwig that's a really good game that's about placing castle rooms into building a castle and all about adjacencies and all about putting tiles next to each other. Let's just take that game and make a between two version of it. And I also knew that Jamie Stegmeier personally is and was a huge fan of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. I think that was his favorite game for, for a while. So I knew that Jamie would be excited about the idea of Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and I just felt that it would work really well with the Between Two system. So we went to Jamie and said, hey, we've been working on, be- on this Between Two Castles, but what if we just talked to Bezier Games about using their IP and their art and made a Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig? And Jamie loved the idea. We got working on it, and uh, yeah, it came together pretty came together pretty quickly once we just just embraced the castles of Mad King Ludwig theme. So that's how that came about. Interesting. I want to briefly talk about your beer games, beer crafters and home brewers. Always interesting to see two games from one designer with sort of a similar theme. And I don't know if that was a happy accident or if it was purposeful. Obviously, being from Chicago, Chicago is a very beer friendly city. So I'm trying to figure out how did those games come about and the the theme of beer. Well, I like to model systems in the games that I design. So I'm not a world builder. I will probably never make a game about zombies or orcs or any kind of fantasy wizards. I'm not a world builder. I am a systems modeler. And I was in Milton, Delaware at the Dogfish Brewery taking a tour of their brewery. And they were just so passionate talking about all the new equipment that they had installed. And we just put a $2 million this machine over here. And here's our new bottling line. And we got this automated, you know, bottling thing happening. And they just had so much passion for what they were doing and building a small brewery and taking what was a real small craft brewery and expanding it and making it bigger. And along the the tour there, I was just like, this, this is a board game. And so the idea for brew crafters was born on that tour. And I basically wanted to model that system. I was like, well, what if you had a little craft brewery and you were trying to expand it and make it bigger and and be a successful craft brewery? So what would that game look like? And I was a huge fan of Agricola at the time. I mean, I still am. So I took a lot of inspiration for the kind of worker placement mechanic. And I knew that I wanted it to be a heavier game right away. So I basically said, okay, I'm going to take Agricola. I'm going to turn that into a craft brewery instead of a farm. And I, I kind of started from there. While I was designing Brew Crafters, I had the idea of, well, what if there was a prequel to the game, which was about home brewing? Because a lot of people that opened craft breweries were originally home brewers, right? They brewed in their basement or their garage. And then eventually it started opening a craft brewery. So uh, the idea for homebrewers was born while I was making brew crafters. And originally I was trying to really have it be a prequel in the sense of that you could play homebrewers and then take whatever you achieved in homebrewers, you would take that and port that over and have that be kind of your starting setup for brew crafters. 
So almost like an expansion, but on the other side of the game that you would play this game and then it would kind of naturally flow into playing Brewcrafters. That idea did not pan out. Uh, and so Homebrewers became its own separate standalone game. But that's where the idea for Homebrewers came from. That theme was in my head. I'm not a brewer. I don't brew beer. Don't even drink that much anymore. But uh, I used to be a little bit into craft beer and into it enough that I would go take brewery tours. It turns out that people like beer. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, who knew? And some of those people play games. And some of those people play games. That's, right. <laughs> that's great. Let's talk about Search for Planet X. Very different sort of game. It's a deduction and a mystery game. You're searching for the mysterious planet X. Sort of a logic puzzle, right? Certain things can't be next to other things. Certain things have to be in certain sectors of space. And you've got an app that's driving that. Talk to me a little bit about how that game came to be and the move into an app interface and how that happened. Well, again, I'm a systems modeler. And so I heard about... Uh, this real search that is really going on right now in science, there are astronomers that believe that there's another planet in our solar system that has not yet been discovered. It's because of the way that certain celestial bodies toward the outer edge of our solar system are behaving, the way that they are orbiting, their gravitational pulls being affected. The theory is that there is another really giant planet out there that's so far away from the sun and so dark that we haven't found it yet, but that it's there affecting the other dwarf planets and other celestial bodies in the outer solar system. And so right away I thought, well, that just seems like an awesome theme for a game. And what would a game about that be like? How would that work? Deduction just seemed to immediately fit logic deduction. You're learning something about something out there, and that gives you an insight into something else that must be true. Well, if A, then B, and if B, then C. And so that progression of learning a little bit and then applying what you've learned uh, to making educated guesses about where other things might be uh, just seemed like a mechanic that fit that perfectly. And so I, I had that idea in my head, and it kind of kicked around for about a year, but I wasn't, I really didn't know how could I make this work. And uh, I was also a huge fan of Alchemists, uh, which is another logic deduction app-driven game. And so really my goal with Search for Planet X was to make a one-hour version of Alchemists that you could uh, basically strip away all the worker placement and just have the logic puzzle part of it. At some point, I kind of got the inspiration for, you know, for the, the circle uh, of the different sectors of space uh, that Planet X uses and, you know, looking for different objects that each have their own logic rules. And it just seemed to me like there had to be an app that was, that was running this uh, because I didn't want, uh, certainly did not want a GM to have to GM the game and not play and just give answers to other people. You know, the other deduction games that I've played that don't use an app that have a deduction system, you know, they work and they're great. And I'm actually really impressed with being able to create a, a logic hidden information deduction game without having an app or something or a computer hide some of that information. Uh, but it just seemed to me like uh, this, this game was really just calling for calling for an app that would stand in as the scientific community that would basically review your research and uh, let you know, peer review your research and let you know whether you're on the right track or not. 
I'm curious how having the app involved changed the playtest process. What was that like? Going back to what we were talking about, the benefits of having a design partner. I am not a, a coder, a software developer. I couldn't build you an app, but my design partner is. And that's what he used to do for a living is, uh, is make websites. Uh, and so initially I was the app. So for the first, I don't know, 10 times I play tested the game, I didn't even get to play because I was the app as people were doing their searches and their scans. I was sliding them cards that told them what they found and I was acting as the app. The cool thing about the app is it let me actually play this game that I had been playtesting for a while, but never actually gotten to play because I had to be the app every time I would playtest the game. And so once we had a system that we really liked and had what we thought were a stable design, then Matthew, in an amazingly short amount of time, I don't know, it took him like a couple of weeks or something. And he had this app built that had its own AI and it would create its own clues, it would create the board states. And I was... Well, I was amazed. I was like, I don't know how you did this so fast, but this is great. So Matthew built the first version of the app. And even the current app that you know you download and use to play the game is heavily based on the initial logic that he put into it. So it pretty much is, is his app uh, uh, that he built. So it let us play test the game really quickly because also before we had the app, Matthew and I could never play test at the same time. One of us always had to run the game for the group, for the other player. So until we had the app, it was the first time that he and I actually got to experience the same thing at the same time and actually play together. Uh, and then a lot of credit to Foxtrot Games. They did an amazing job, not only with the art, the graphic design, making the final version of the app. Uh, they also introduced several really key gameplay changes that vastly and drastically improved the game. And so... Yeah, I'm really happy with what we put out. And without Matthew and without Foxtrot, it never would have been as good as it is. It must have been a really interesting development process and a great game as a result of it. Congratulations to you. Thank you. How do you view your own progression as a designer at this point? How do you think you have changed as a designer? I can answer that in a few ways. I definitely have moved toward designing lighter games. I definitely don't design light games or kids games or, you know, really filler games, but I don't see myself trying to design another Brewcrafters, which is like a two and a half hour worker placement game. As a designer, I think I've moved to, to games that are more in the 45 minutes to an hour, maybe an hour and a half range. So I've started, I've started playing lighter games and designing lighter games as well. It's so much easier to design lighter games, you know, you have to, you want to design a two and a half hour game and then you have an idea for changing it. You're like, oh, I want to try this. And it totally doesn't work. You just spent two and a half hours to find out that something totally doesn't work. Uh, and so with a, with a 45 minute game, that iteration, that iterative process goes a lot faster. Besides that, this is another thing that has come from working with a design partner is I was always more of a mechanics person you know theme didn't really matter to me that much the integration of theme and mechanics i was always like well that's a problem that we'll worry about later uh, and matthew is not that he doesn't care about mechanics but he's thinking about that right from the start how do these mechanics integrate with this theme does it make sense do the mechanics support the theme so that the players can learn what the game is about and intuitively get up and into the game and playing as, as quickly as possible and so 
that has rubbed off on me in a good way. So I now find myself thinking about that right from the start. Not only are these interesting mechanics, but do they work with, do they make sense for the theme and how do we integrate the mechanics and the theme together into an experience that just kind of intuitively makes sense for the player. So that's an, another, another kind of change that I've, I've seen in, uh, in my designing over time. Hmm. What do you still find to be a challenge as a designer? Letting go of the ideas that you just know in your heart are amazing ideas, even when other people tell you that those ideas are not really working very well. Being able to let go and being able to walk away from a mechanic or a theme or a game or whatever it is that's just not working, even though you are so in love with the idea and think that's going to be the next, the next big thing that is still after, I don't know, 12 years of designing, the most difficult thing to do is walking away from, from an idea that you have fallen in love with, even if other people are not in love with it. How have you reached a level of comfort with that? Have you just started to tell yourself, well, I'll come back to that someday in a different way, or do you just move on because you've learned to move on? Mostly you just move on because you've learned to move on. Uh, it's still painful. It's still not easy to do. What I have done at least is on my whiteboard over here, I have a little section that I, it's called back shelf section, which is like ideas that I really love that I want to get back to at some point in the future. So at least if I write it up on that board, it hasn't totally disappeared from my life. It's still there. It's still something that who knows what inspiration may come in the future. But I've got games up there that I designed, yeah, really early on, probably back in 2013, 2014, that are written up there. You know, hey, maybe someday I'll get back to this game. Still on the whiteboard. That's impressive. That's still, great. still on the whiteboard. Still on the whiteboard. I guess I at least do that. So a way to release it is to release it in writing onto a board just to say, hey, maybe, maybe this will come back. Since we're talking about your whiteboard, I want to let you talk briefly about games that you have in development, uh, those that you can't speak about. The only one I'm aware of is I know you're working on Key to the Kingdom with Restoration Games. Is that still the case? Yeah, that game is, I don't know exactly where that is. I think that it has been manufactured. Right now, global logistics are kind of crazy, and it's really hard to get games out of China and shipped overseas. So I believe that game is either waiting to leave China. I know they manufactured it at Panda. I'm, I'm hoping that sometime this year that that game will come out. Uh, and again, it's a restoration game. So it's a game, uh, original game, I think, from the, from the 90s uh, that we worked on updating and, and restoring. Yeah, so that'll be, that'll be coming out soon. Um, we've also got, we are uh, working on, I don't want to say too much about it, but we're working on another follow-up to Search for Planet X. Uh, it is not an expansion, so it is a different game, standalone game, but it uses a similar system that Search for Planet X uses. A different topic, still in the science world, but not looking for a new planet and introduces some new mechanics. Uh, so we're working on that. Again, just modeling systems. We're, we're working on a game about cheese making right now. That's uh, unsigned, so we're going to be looking for a publisher for that soon. Working on a, a bunch of other stuff. I hate the um, designers say, oh, I can't talk about this yet, but 
the reality is publishers like to control the marketing and the message and they want to make a big splash and make a big announcement and get people excited about it. So, so yeah, a couple, couple other things that, that we are excited about that uh, we'll be coming out with in the next uh, couple of years. One last question, and then I want to briefly touch on your work at Panda. With Key to the Kingdom, it seems like that might have been a slightly different process. I had not heard of or played the original game it was based on. I don't know if you had. But was that a, a situation where Restoration sort of reached out to you because they thought you would be an appropriate designer? I'm curious how that worked for you. I went to the first tabletop network that was out in Utah. I think this was 2018, the summer of 2018, for game designers to get together at a conference about game design. And Rob Davio was one of the featured keynote speakers there. And I had known Rob, like I met Rob before, but I didn't really know him. And we got a chance to talk. We were just uh, ran into him in the hallway kind of thing. And we were talking and he asked me what projects I was working on. And uh, basically I, uh, well, not begged, but close enough to say, hey, I'd love to design a game for restoration. You know, do you guys have any games that uh, you need designed right now? And so that, that was it. It was just me having a conversation with Rob. I was kind of shocked because I, you know, at that time I had a few games published, but I didn't think I was anybody special in the industry. And he said, oh yeah, that sounds great. We'll send you a list of games that we're interested in having designed and you can look through them and, uh, and let us know if there's one that you're interested in. I was like, well, that was easy. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the things that I love about this industry is you just have a conversation with someone and say, this is what I'm interested in. Are you interested in the same kind of thing? Oh, yeah, great. Let's work on that together. They did not reach out to us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it, was, it was us saying that uh, we'd, we'd love to work with them. And then, no, I, I had not, never played Key to the Kingdom or any of the games. They sent us a list of five or six games that they wanted to have worked on. And Matthew and I watched videos for them, took a look at the reviews for them. And these are all games from the 80s and 90s, right? So we, we watched them and we just picked this one. We thought we would, we would have fun with it. We thought we'd be good designers for it. So that's how that came about. All right. Well, can't wait to see it when it finally hits the shelves. So let's talk a little bit about your, your actual professional life, I guess we should say, at Panda, Panda Game Manufacturing. Just tell me how you came to be there and what you're doing in your current job as the head of uh, HR and training. Yeah, so that plane ride that I told you about where I decided to, yeah, I wanted to try to get into the industry full time uh, is how I, I came to find out that there were positions available at Panda. So I got hired right around Christmas 2014 as a project manager. The project manager at Panda works with publishers to get their game from basically a spec sheet, a sheet of paper saying this is what the game is going to contain to a shipment on pallets of, you know, 5,000 games boxed up and shrink-wrapped and palletized and ready to ship out from the factory. So that's what the project manager does is, is turn that piece of paper into, into board games that are ready to be shipped. It was just a wonderful opportunity. Um, I had known Panda already because they were the manufacturers for both Brewcrafters and Mars Needs Mechanics. So I knew of them because they had manufactured games that I had designed. Um, I had met Michael Lee, who's the CEO at Gen Con one year and chatted with him. He just seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah, so I, I took the plunge, kind of joined this uh, company that I didn't know too much about. It was remote work. It was working from home. Uh, I left the government. And yeah, it's just been fantastic. I mean, as a, as a company, the greatest company that I ever have worked for, ever really could imagine working for. 
I love Michael and Richard and Jen, the three siblings that, uh, that uh, run Panda and that founded Panda. Uh, and we just have, have an amazing team. And when I joined the company in 2014, 15, uh, there were about 12 of us. Uh, and there's about 32-ish now. So the company has, has grown quite a bit over the last six years, as has the entire industry uh, has grown. And, and so, yeah, I was doing project management. I was uh, helping clients to get their games produced. We have our own factory in Shenzhen, China. So uh, we don't just outsource to a bunch of different factories over there. We actually work with our clients here, like Stonemeyer Games, uh, and then work with our factory over in China to kind of get the client's vision produced. Uh, and then growing companies need new roles. They need new positions that they didn't need before. You start needing like, hey, we need somebody to kind of like manage all this growth and to execute our hiring campaigns. And we need somebody to train people once they come to the company. So I became the director of HR and training. And two of my big roles are to hire new people and bring new people into the company and then train them once they're here. I've been doing that now for the last couple of years. Yeah, it's still my full-time job. Fantastic. I imagine being at Panda in the middle of a pandemic and shipping shortage has been rather interesting. Yeah, yeah, it has. It's really interesting because in some ways, you know, we were always a work-from-home company. Uh, we were always remote work. The entire company is fully remote. So when the pandemic hit, we were like, okay, I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? The world was shutting down and our factory had to shut down for about a month uh, in China, mandated by the government there. So we didn't know what was going to happen. But once everything was back up and running, we were already working from home. We were already, it was just kind of getting back into the normal, I hate to say business as usual, but it, things didn't change that much. The board game industry started booming. Everybody was worried whether Kickstarter was going to shut down and people were going to stop backing games because of the pandemic, but just the opposite happened, right? And then, yeah, we ran into the, the global shipping logistics uh, issue, which is not just an issue with board games right now. You know, you can't just double the capacity of a factory overnight, right? It takes a long time to do that. And then even if you do that, you can't just double the number of container ships that exist in the world overnight. Uh, and they can only move across the ocean so fast. There are only so many trucks to unload those goods and drive them across the country once they get to the United States. And so, yeah, there is this very serious global logistics tangle that is happening right now that is trying to untangle itself. There was a Ludology episode a few episodes ago uh, where they interviewed Justin Bergeron, who's a global logistics shipping expert. So I highly recommend anyone that wants to learn more about that, go listen to that Ludology episode that came out a couple of months ago. But it's, it's tough, right? Because uh, we've got right now at Panda containers, containers of finished games that are done. The manufacturing is done. They're shrink wrapped. They're on pallets. And we can't find boats to put them on. So it's, uh, it's something that the whole industry is, is working on. And, and no one knows how long it's going to last. I am going over time, and it is time to get into the minigame. Ben, are you ready to play the Board Game Times minigame? I am. I promise you will emerge without bruises. My first question for you. What is your gaming beverage of choice? Mm, orange juice. Orange juice or Diet Coke? One of the two. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of that sugar, a little bit of that getting up, or the Diet Coke gives me a little bit of caffeine. But uh, I don't like drinking 
uh, you know, hard drinks when I'm playing because yeah. I want to do as well as I can. Every <laughs> sip of alcohol I have means I'm going to make a slightly dumber right. decision when I'm playing a game. So, <laughs> um, so I usually don't drink, but I need a little pick me up. So either diet Coke or orange juice. All right. Excellent choices. Next question then. What's your preferred number of players at the game table? Three or four. Usually games are designed for two to four players. And so oftentimes three is that sweet spot where you just get the best gameplay experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, so I love that uh, three or four. And then once you get over six and you start having side conversations and you start having people not kind of paying attention, you have too many phones at the table. I think that three to four is, is the perfect, perfect spot. All right. Keeps that nice tight focus. Next question. What do you think is your most admirable gaming trait or behavior? Teaching games. I have had a lot of people say that I teach games well and a lot of compliments on teaching games. And I love teaching games. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. That sounds good. Next question on the flip side. What is your least admirable gaming trait or behavior? Oh, boy. Okay, so I'll stay on the topic of teaching games. So I'm really good at teaching games. I get visibly annoyed with people when they make jokes while I am teaching a game. Uh, I can't stand it. And I have been known to give a little bit of a scowl to people to uh, shut them up and uh, start them to behave better while I am spending time teaching them how to play this game. But sometimes uh, my frustration maybe comes out in ways that aren't good. So <laughs> all right, I, I think it's that. Maybe keep your eyes off the phone while Ben is teaching a game as well. Definitely. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Next question then. What is a type or genre of game that you just love to play? I love, uh, I love drafting as a mechanic. I also love push your luck uh, as a mechanic. So yeah, I also love I cut you choose. I'll, I'll go with those drafting, push your luck. I cut you choose. I always find those to be interesting decisions, interesting mechanics. And to me, that's what games are all about. A series of interesting decisions. And I think those three mechanics are really good at, at bringing those out. Flip side again, then, what is a type or genre of game that you just don't enjoy? I don't enjoy, in terms of theme, I don't enjoy fantasy so much. I don't enjoy zombies and what we talked about before, orcs and wizards. And I enjoy games that are about something that I can see in my daily life and have some kind of basis in reality and something that I feel like I can know. And so those themes are, I, I just not, uh, not, not that interested in them and usually choose not to play games about, about those topics. Fair enough. Next question then, what is a physical game component that you love? And working at Panda, you see a lot of physical game components. We do. Um, okay, I'm going to say dual layer punch points. You know, Scythe was one of the first that really came out with that and that got people using it. And now it's, it's everyone wants kind of dual layer punch boards, but it's just, it's just a little bit of thoughtful touch that, you know, you put a little groove into the, your little mm. player tableau and your tokens don't slide around uh, when you knock the table. Just, I really like thoughtfulness and let's take a component that everybody uses and figure out how to make it just a little bit better. And I think dual layer punch boards are a great example. Good call. No one said that before, but that's a really good one. Because You're right. There's nothing more pleasing when you open a box and you see those inside. It's like, oh, this is going to be a, this is going to be a good experience. Be a good game. Yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> Somebody really thought about this. I love that. Okay. Last couple questions. What is a game you own, but have not played? Ooh, I have the new Kemet 
or Kamatsa, I don't even know how to pronounce it, uh, Blood, uh, Blood of Sand, I think, Blood and Sand, uh, which was on Kickstarter. I have played the original, and I do love the original, but the new one is still sitting over there in shrink, and I have got to get it to the table soon. Uh, I really want to see what's, uh, what's going on in the new version of the game. Uh, it's, a, it's a favorite of mine, and I can't wait to play it. All right, that's great. I have the same thing sitting somewhere back here. I can't find it right now. And I have not played the old version, but I'm extremely excited to play the new one. So, Oh, it's so good. It is so good. Yeah. Oh, good. Can't wait. All right. Then what is a game you really want to play, but never have? Gates of Loyang by uh, Uwe, Uwe Rosenberg. I've heard really good things about it. I've heard from people that it might be uh, Uwe's best game. I'm a big fan of uh, his work and his games. And so I really want to get that one to the table and play that. I've never played it. All right. Great recommendation. Finally, then, what is a game you currently want to recommend and why? Well, my favorite game is Seven Wonders Duel. I know it's really popular. And so a lot of people out there probably have played it. But if you haven't played it, I would highly suggest that you do. Um, I've played over 1,200 games of it on Board Game Arena. And wow. I have it in the physical version as well. Wow. I know I'm pretty much obsessed with it. And I want to recommend it because to me, like I said, to the best games to me are a series of interesting decisions and Seven Wonders Tool just does that. Uh, every single decision that you make just uh, throughout the game is, uh, is an interesting decision. Really unique card drafting system. Really popularizes two-player head-to-head games and versions of other games. And so, you know, has had a, an impact on the industry. So I think as a designer or as a player, I would recommend uh, playing Seven Wonders Duel. Great recommendation. Do you play it with any of the expansions? I do. I have played with both of the expansions, but you know what? It is so good on its own. I just, I don't feel the need to add the expansions in. I 1,200 games in at Board Game Arena, and I don't play it with the expansions there, and I haven't gotten sick of it, which is just amazing. The expansions are good, but also... The base game is so complete on its own. I don't think it needs expansion. Wow. Oh, great recommendation. 1,200 games. Wow. Remind me I know. never I know. to play you on Board Game Arena if your name ever comes up. <laughs> <laughs> or I will learn a lot. That's for sure. Well, thank you very much for playing the Board Game Times minigame. And then finally, that leads us into just shameless promotion. I just want to give you a chance to let people know where they can reach out to you. I know you have a, a, a few openings at Panda that you wanted to mention as well. So I just, I will give you the mic and let you talk about whatever you like. Yeah, I do want to mention Panda Game Manufacturing. Uh, we have four full-time, fully remote work positions that are available right now. Two for project managers, one for a full stack web developer, and one for pre-press specialists. Uh, pre-press specialists are the ones that know all about the, the ins and outs of printing and how to actually uh, set the machines up to make sure that, uh, that everything gets printed, set the files up and, and machines get printed. So yeah, we got four full-time positions, fully remote, you know, with benefits, work from home. And at Panda, we, we hire gamers and we want to hire gamers and we want to hire people that are passionate about tabletop games. So if you are passionate about the industry, passionate about tabletop games and wanting to make the industry better, and you want to help people make games all day, 
then please head over to pandagm.com slash careers. Take a look at the job openings that we have, and they're going to be up until October 29th. So uh, you have until October 29th to put in an application and yeah, we, we'd love to see you apply. Fantastic. And you have an online presence people should be aware of in case people want to interact with Ben Ross at the Game Designer or forward questions, anything like that? A little bit. I'm not very active on social media. I am on Twitter at Ben Rossett and feel free to, to follow me or send me messages and interact with me there. I check Twitter every once in a while, but definitely not a daily thing. Um, again, I'm on Facebook, but not, not too active with it. I actually probably more active on BGG than I am on any social media platform. So um, I'm Rossett37, R-O-S-S-E-T-37 on BGG. And I definitely invite anybody to send me a message uh, on BGG, whether it's about game design or, or if you live in the Bloomington, Illinois kind of central area and want to get together and play games, send me a message. I'd love to meet up. It doesn't get any better than that. There's an opportunity to play with a fantastic game designer from that Bloomington area, people. Ben, thank you so much for being with me today and answering all my questions and listening to my beeping devices in the background that interrupt the podcast. Good luck with all of your game designs and upcoming game work and good luck at Panda and hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks so much. I really had a great time. I appreciate the opportunity, Clark. Thanks so much. And that is it for this episode. I want to say thanks again to Ben Rossett for being generous with his time and sharing his design insights and experience with us. Really fascinating to hear how his mind works and maybe get a few sneak peeks about games he's got coming up soon. And don't forget to check out those job openings Ben mentioned with Panda Game Manufacturing if you're interested. I want to say thanks as always to all my listeners. You're the reason I'm doing this. I'm really trying to make sure we all know about the great people in the Chicago gaming scene and that you might get a chance to meet and play games with someday. If you have ideas of people I should talk to, guests I should have on the show, please share those with me. Let me know what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong. Make sure you share this with your friends. And if you can rate it and review it wherever you found it in the podcast world, I'd appreciate it. That's how we get the word out about the show. Of course, you can always reach me at Clark at BoardGameTimes.com. That's Times with an S. Or on the Board Game Times page on Facebook. Shoot me an email. Hey, maybe we'll just play a game or something. Until next time, thanks for listening. Play lots of games. Be good to one another. And may all your board game times be the best of times. Take care. Take care.